Could it be that Job helps us get a different perspective on the question, who is my neighbor, if we were to ask ourselves, who will be Job's friends? And how is it that a caricature of our innocence could possibly get in the way of forgiveness? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're the podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically. That is, thinking about life through the lens of Jesus. Today on the podcast, uh, my friend Scott Curry returns. Uh, Scott and I have been carrying on an ongoing conversation on the book of Job. Scott's doing his Old Testament PhD work on that uh, book. And I thought it might be a great uh, asset and a resource to invite Scott on to talk about uh, pastoral, pastoral theology, practical theology, from the perspective of the Old Testament, from, in this case, Job. So if you've missed any of the previous uh, uh, episodes, they don't exactly build on one another, but they're all connected. You can go back in the catalog and you can uh, uh, look for those conversations with Scott Curry. I uh, have a couple of other guests in mind, reached out, made contact with. I'll try to give you a little note on that on the other side. But one thing you could do is help us. We're, we're slowly, gradually getting more reviews and ratings, and it just helps. Uh, we, we got a goal of hitting 50. So if you could help us hit 50, that would be fantastic. So that would be um, a, a great help. It would... Uh, Get us in better position to maybe be uh, an available resource for your pastor or pastors you know or lay leaders who do pastoral ministry in your local congregation. So, uh, as always, I want to thank you for listening, taking the time to do so, and here's my conversation with Scott Curry.
Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Uh, today I'm uh, glad to have one of my favorite guests, trying to make it a regular, that is Scott Curry, who is a pastor in the Panhandle of Texas. We've been longtime friends, and uh, we got to having some conversations around uh, Job, uh, pastoral theology and reflection, and we've taken on a variety of subjects, and today we're going to talk about forgiveness as as we kind of look at the story of Job again. So, Scott, glad to have you today, man. Uh, buddy, it's great to be back, and quite frankly, been too long. It's been too long. That is my fault, as we have discussed earlier been busy, been trying to just make it through that particular season, I think. We're on the other side of it, at least for now. So if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's talk Job and pastoral theology. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I. it's interesting that when, you know, we were kind of exchanging emails about where we were with Job and kind of the subject we were going to look at. Sunday, just this past, um, we're doing for six weeks, we're doing a series um, on the meals of Jesus, that the stories of the meals of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And so what, what I'll do is, obviously, we'll, we'll, there's lots of things you can't unpack in a sermon on Sunday morning because the attention span just not going to allow for some of the interesting nuances that you discover along the way. So on Sunday nights during that series, I'm kind of taking a, a little deeper look at what goes into some of the conclusions, some of the emphases, and that sort of thing. And so in the uh, Luke 7 passage, where uh, Simon has invited Jesus uh, to dinner, and this woman uh, wanders in and washes Jesus' feet with her tears, wipes them with her hair, kisses his feet, perfumes his feet, it struck one of... Uh, those who were there Sunday night. That, so, so Jesus says he forgives sins there. So the question of forgiveness came up, and it, and it really came up to the point of, so does that mean, you know, because Jesus had yet to die, how do we figure forgiveness and what's that forgiveness for? And so, of course, you know, you talk about forgiveness and you talk about sort of how the future is brought into the present by the work of the Spirit and the, that sort of thing, and it's actually point. You know, you, you, you do the things that you've thought through theologically, but I thought, well, let's Job, Job will help us with that. One, we'll talk about what forgiveness is, but then we're going to talk about, so, like, how do we factor that in in the chronology of the story as it's unfolded to us? And we get, for example, in chapter 7, why not forgive my sin? You know, Job is responding to Eliphaz there, and, and he says, why not forgive my sin? So, so let's tackle it this way. So let's take the subject of forgiveness. So in, in the Hebrew, in your research, in your study, in your work, how should we understand that word as we read it coming over from that particular um, culture? I like it. Let's do this. Now, of course, uh, stop me, uh, pull back on the reins if you need to. But what I want to do immediately is I want to try to recap because we're when we talk about forgiveness, what we're talking about now is not someone accidentally hit a baseball through my window. We're, we're going to have to set the stage. And so when we're talking about the kind of forgiveness, that of which we speak in the book of Job, let's drill down just a moment. First of all, when you walk through the book of Job, you can see the things 
that have happened to this man who was righteous and blameless and so forth and so on. So there is nothing that he got that he deserved. Uh, as you move on through this thing, you see that there is an adversary involved. The heavenly council is called to meet the uh, the ha satan. The adversary comes and God gives him not only free reign to do what he wants to do, but he mentions Job personally, but says, all right, you can, but you cannot hurt his life. You can't take his life. You can have free reign. So now here's Job. His wife turns on him and she says, hey, look, I'm out. If you're, if you're going to continue to do this, I can't watch this anymore. So why don't you curse God and die? Well, after that occurs, then, of course, uh, you know, Job is having to deal with the death of his children. Eventually, uh, the friends do show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And then, chapter 3, Job has a fit. He throws a fit. Now, I think that's interesting because when we talk about forgiveness, we're not asking for uh, immodest. We're not asking for a Caiaphas-like priestly aura that is not ashamed to brag about, hey, this is how the pious person makes it. That's not what we're talking about. That is theologically immodest, and it is unfaithful to the gospel. What we're talking about is a faith that has to wrestle with a depth of hurt and pain, uh, that of which can barely be put into words. Now, to your question. The forgiveness that we're talking about as we enter into Job's life itself, let's get in his skin for just a little while. Let's talk about Job emotionally. Let's talk about him spiritually. First of all, I would tell you that before we ever get to forgiveness, we've got to be like Job in as much as we have to be making those spiritual deposits. Uh, if we go to the bank to make a withdrawal, and there's nothing there, then we're going to leave uh, with that that we had when we walked in. So we have to understand these things. I mean, there is a context here, and one of the reasons, at least, I'm convinced that Job is able to make it through this particular situation like he does is because he's been making spiritual deposits. Now, forgiveness. You mentioned the friends. Let me Let me just... I want to mention here something. I think it's Samuel Ballantyne. Sam Ballantyne uh, mentions this. One of the overarching questions in the book of Job is this. Who will be Job's friend? Mm. Now, when you talk about forgiveness, I dare say that attached to that is a human relationship. We... It's easy for us to say sometimes, okay, well, I've made my peace with God. Well, that's pretty hard to quantify. But when you can say, I am reaching out to someone to help me, to minister to me, to walk with me through this, one more time, there is a sense of maturity. Now, unfortunately, the friends are not all that interested in reciprocating, that is to say, giving Job what he really needs. However, what Job is looking for here is he is looking for an answer as to why and what he is offered, ultimately, not by the friends, 
but ultimately he's offered forgiveness. He is offered an opportunity to start over. Now, let me, let me kind of build this thing on forgiveness, if I may. Let me get into Job 42. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. At the end of the book of Job, it says, And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Eliphaz, Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, let's just stop right there and let's make sure that we understand. We talked about what Job did in his relationship with God, but I want you to see here, we need to see what God says in his relationship with Job. When a person is called a servant, that is a compliment. When you get into the life of Moses and Joshua in Joshua chapter one, Joshua is called an aide. He is not called a servant. He is not called a servant until later on in the book of Joshua. Mm -hmm. Moses is the servant. And so the term is earned. It is not something that is automatic. So when God is talking to Eliphaz and he calls Job a servant, what that means is this relationship is reciprocal and God gets it. Job has been uh, he has been righteous, he has been blameless, and God gets it. So it wasn't wasted. These deposits we're talking about are never wasted. Now, verse 8 says, Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, here's the point I mentioned earlier. It's actually quite easy to say, well, God and I figured this out, all right. <laughs> but what do you do when God says, now, wait a minute, in this case, now let's, let's, talk, let's talk pastors and staff here for just a moment. Sure. In this case, what I'm asking of you is restoration. It's not time to send out a resume. Uh, you're, you're not going to run. You can't run. I mean, it, you know, God's bringing us to a growth point here, and we're fighting with every fiber of our being. We're wanting to run. We're saying to God, God, I didn't sign up for Nineveh. Right. You can have these people. Uh, I'm out. And God says, no, actually what you're going to do is, is I'm going to send them to you, and they're going to make an overture in your direction. Now it's going to be it's going to be a real overture, though. You know you might have to look to find the sincerity. Nonetheless, it'll be there. And what I want you to do then, therefore, is to pray. Now we have segued into the reality of what Jesus says when He says, "You pray for your enemies." So, hmm. how do you define forgiveness? Well, I would tell you that there's quite a bit more that I need to cover before I really want to get to that. But I do think that the issue here is you have to define forgiveness okay. because in different situations, forgiveness may look a little different. Now, ultimately, you've got to know that your spirit is unburdened. Your heart is protected from anger, and these people can be treated as a biblical enemy or friend in as much as we pray for them and we do good to them. Mm -hmm. But you do have to define forgiveness well, because many people think it's, well, you know, I just, we forgive and forget. Sorry, just not that simple. 
Right. Well, so so let's 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 get you into a position from from Job's story because so so here we've got a couple of things. We've got uh, evidently we've got um, Job wrestling with um, what's happened to him, and and he believes evidently that if God would just forgive him, he would be unburdened. Um, and then and then you get what we read in in forty two uh, about Job's friends, and that evidently um, they're in need of. Of forgiveness or misrepresenting and not speaking what's right or true about about Yahweh, so in in that in that setting, we we want to look at so what's the breach? So if if understanding forgiveness is contextual and if it it doesn't if we have different nuances of how we understand it, what what does Job tell us? So what's Job saying? I mean, because it, it is a little bit startling, right? So as the story unfolds, we really don't get um, any indication that Job really has uh, done anything to um, bring about what appears to be this uh, a trading places style bet, you know. Uh, um, and and so here is, you know, here's here's Eddie Murphy on the street. Um, He's a he's he's a he's a homeless dude, and the two older brothers they decide to make a bet that for we later find out for a buck, they can turn their guy out that they trained out on the street to be homeless, and they because of their whole system, anybody can do what they do. And so it's just like no luck of his own. It's a whimsical thing. It was he fell prey to a whimsy. Well. That's a bit how the story gets given to us. So from that standpoint, when we start talking about early on, Job wrestling with how forgiveness works and his understanding, even despite the deposits he's made, he's thinking, well, whatever it must be, if, if I could just get forgiveness, then all this, this I, I'd be restored, there'd be reparation, there, I, you know, I'd do whatever I need to do. Um, and so from that, for some of us who read that, we're, we're like, well... I'm Scott. You're you you're, you're kind of toying with me. I'm trying to figure out how is it that Job is is in need of forgiveness, or is what's going on in the story something deeper than that? And we're learning about um, how the friends need forgiveness. Job needs forgiveness, but I would not be so irresponsible as to assume that the friends know that. God knows that. And that comes out at the end. And, you know, we'll, we'll hit that in just a moment. The friends, however, they, they are those kinds of folks that they need it and they don't know it. You know, what is it? There's a three-tiered approach to people. You know, there are those that, that just don't have it and don't know they don't have it, those that have it and know they have it, and those that have it don't know they have it. And these guys, they don't have it. They don't know that they don't have it. But there is an enmeshment there because it's true that in – in chapter two, they kind of do have it right. because they're willing to come and sit. And there's, right. I think there's where we start to build on this issue of, quite frankly, who will be Job's friend? Now, I know that that's not where we are, but I would like to make sure, even if it's parenthetical, that that we understand, and I'm going to stick, I'm going to stick with, with your 
uh, centrifuge, the, the center, which you have boiled it down to. I'm talking pastors and I'm talking theology. Mm-hmm. The things that we've, the thing we've got to understand is this. When people go through this, they are, they don't have to be right. They don't have to be theologically sound. They don't have to prove themselves. We don't have to like them. There's still a question that is looming and it's in Job 2 and it's in Luke 10. And that is, who will be Job's friend? In Luke chapter 10, when we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. The Bible doesn't say he's good. My little topic, you know, my heading on my Bible tells me he's the Good Samaritan. The Bible doesn't tell me that. Right. But the issue is, you know, the, the lawyer wants to know, uh, you know, how do I inherit eternal life and who is my neighbor? And basically what he's looking for in that context is he's looking for an opportunity to not be a friend. He, he is used to the Mosaic law. He appreciates the codified law. And of course, he is really in touch with the Shema. And so his questioning comes from the perspective, and the Bible tells us that he's wanting you know, he's basically wanting to feel good about himself. But basically what he's asking is, look, how little can I do and get by with it? Mm-hmm. And Jesus, instead of answering the question by saying, well, it's this person, it's that person. Uh, oh, who is my neighbor? Jesus changes the question in his answer. And he says, in, in, in essence, what he says is, the question is not who is my neighbor. The question is, who needs me? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Who needs me? Uh, after 9-11, the jihadist is the Samaritan mm-hmm. that stops and helps. I mean, in the first century crowd, when Jesus said, and a, and a Samaritan, they would have dropped their teeth. Mm-hmm. Why in the world are you introducing a dog into this story? So having said that, when we talk about these friends, I just, uh, it's more than parenthetic. I know I, I went a bit too far, but I do think we have to understand as pastors, as ministers, that uh, even a Samaritan was willing to help. He didn't stop and ask, oh my gosh, are the assailers still around? Are they going to come back and get me? How is this going to affect me? What is this going to cost me? None of that occurred in the story of the Samaritan. And so now when we get back in, as we enter back into Job and we ask the question, who's going to be Job's friend? I do think that we as pastors have to make sure we as staff members need to know that we can walk with people through the difficulties of life. We don't always have to be right, Mm -hmm. but we do have to be there. And something that you have said to me time after time is you keep showing up. Yeah. Yeah. That that opens up some, some really fascinating ways to um, make some, make some applications. So for instance, uh, the, the interpersonal dynamics of ministry over time, make it such that, that uh, we run the risk of, uh, self-selecting who needs me and yes, and yes, and it, and it's it's a it, it can be generally speaking we forget that um, one of our understandings of our own calling if we're kind of 
using Jesus as our model, we're not looking for who needs me for my benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when we self-select out those for whom uh, we feel need me, generally there's an undertow that they need me because of what that does for me. Well, now you know as well as I do that when you have a seemingly astute individual attend your church, you must visit them over and over again because you want to be their pastor. Subtitle, I want your tithe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that uh, we, uh, myself included, we have to fight that because, I mean, the whole model of Jesus, where was he? Well, you know, it's obvious where he was. Right. And so we've got to be careful that we recognize. And, and, and there are so many ways to justify that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and again, in the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, you've got a priest that goes by. You've got, uh, you know, a person who, you know, probably— was well-versed in taking care of the sacrifices and that kind of mm-hmm. thing and skinning the animals mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a lawyer over here that is asking questions that really what he's looking to do is find a way out. I'm looking for a loophole, right. okay? And so we just have to be so careful, and I think we have to acknowledge that. Now, what you've done is you've allowed me to get way too far off course. So might I just <laughs> simply say to the audience, I do blame Dr. Totten, not myself, <laughs> Let's get back into it if you would yeah, allow me. Yeah, go right ahead. Get after it. All right. All right. Here we go. What I want to do is I'm going to I'm, I'm going to walk through a little bit of forgiveness. And this is the reason that I'm giving this is because, you know, I hear people. Uh, I happen to appreciate the uh, Bishop T.D. Jakes. I've heard him say before, and I say appreciate. I like to listen to him. I do think that he has some good things to say. I heard him say something one time. I've said it before. You've said it before, but it's a cute little quip, and it goes like this. Unforgiveness and being angry, I mean hostility kind of angry at someone, is like drinking poison and waiting for them to die. (laughs) Yes. Now, Okay, that's really a true statement, but there's there's a way that happens that is internalized, and I want to talk about that for for just a minute. We have we have said okay that you know what is forgiveness? We've got to define it. The first thing I want to say is is that forgiveness is forgiveness can look like different things in different situations, but ultimately, forgiveness is a process. And I think, I think our people need to know that, our pastors, our staff members, our ministers need to know that. Forgiveness is a process because that might, just that one simple understanding might help dictate the steps that we take in order that if we have been burned badly, uh, so that restoration and, and healing can really occur. Now, when I say restoration, okay, let's get this. At the end of Job, chapter 42, verse 11, it says, then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before. Now, they weren't around before. You see what I'm saying? I mean, Job's going through all of this, and now where are these guys? Well, they're not anywhere to be found. But now here they come. It's almost like Job won the Powerball, and here comes family. 
And they ate bread with him and at his house, and they consoled him, I bet, and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. Now, here's my point. Some are probably going to disagree with me. You yourself may disagree. I don't know. But I look at my relationship to ministry as a calling. I Mm -hmm. felt a very strong calling, which what that says to me is that until God releases me, I don't have the option of walking away. At least I should not. Now, I want to be very careful here. Uh, people would say, well, you don't know how people have been hurt and that kind of thing. And you know what? I do not know everyone's story, but I do know mine. Mm-hmm. And I do know some, mm-hmm. and I have been hurt before. Mm-hmm. Now, there are short-term calls like that of Amos and so forth, but unless God releases me, I've got to stay in this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, if I've got to stay in this thing, then I'm going to have to look like Job 42, 11. I'm going to have to, at some point, come back together and fellowship around the table with these people. So how am I going to get that done? All right, here we go. First of all, you understand it's a process, and that should have some bearing on how you handle it, on your timing, this kind of thing. The second thing is, is I think we have to be careful that we do not, that we do not uh, manufacture counterfeits. Uh, For example, there are several methods, you might say, of forgiveness. One such method is the scissors method approach. Now, the scissors method approach is a counterfeit because basically what that is, according to Doris Donnelly, is you just cut them out of your life. Hmm. Now, you call it forgiveness, but what you've done is you just cut them out of your life. Now, you folks in the city, you, you can do that and you can get by with that. Now, the problem with the scissors method approach, well, there's several problems, but one problem is, is usually suppression goes with that. Mm, mm, Uh, I'm going to cut them out of my life, which is code for, and and I don't have to deal with it. No, you still have to deal with it. You might not have to deal with them, but you still have to deal with it. And that's one of the problems of the scissors method approach is that when we just simply cut people out of our lives thinking, look, I'm in a Metroplex. I'll never see these people again. They drive They drive 25 minutes to get to church. I'll never see them again. If I do, I won't even have to acknowledge them. And so this is going to be fine. Well, uh, watch the suppression issue, because what that means is uh, I really just don't want to deal with it. And we still have to deal with it. Maybe not them. There's a second counterfeit. And that counterfeit is, uh, you know, what you what you might want to call the uh punish them approach, the punish them approach. I'm going to punish them. All right. They've hurt me. Now they may not even know they've hurt me, but they've hurt me. So I'm going to punish them. Well, how do you do that? Well, we play the ignore game. You Mm. see, psychologically, when we're ignoring people, we're punishing them. We're punishing them. We're wanting them to know that we're hurt and we're wanting this, this message to translate into, you're a jerk. And that's what we're trying to do. The third thing I would like to say by way of a counterfeit is, it's easy to to take what we would call the road 
that is often traveled, which is just let it go and then it not go. Mm-hmm. Now, even biblically, there are some things, look, you know what? You get over it. Some things are just not worth it. And again, I have set the stage by saying, look at everything that has happened to Joe. This is not, well, just get over it territory, okay? And so what happens is, is we begin to morph into something. My favorite theologian is the Incredible Hulk. (laughs) And I remember, and I think it was the Avengers, but I think in the Avengers, uh, the enemy is coming and Captain America looks at the human Hulk and he says, this would be a good time to get angry because (laughs) when he angry he morphs into the monster and he looks back at captain america and he says i stay angry and as he says that he begins to change now you and i've talked about this issue of anger but here's the point now in the context of forgiveness much of the time when we choose a counterfeit really all we're doing is being changed we are being morphed we are being translated uh internally by something that we don't even recognize at first, and we're becoming a monster. And the problem with that monster is this. Much like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, all Victor could ever think about was the need to create out of death. He finally got what he wanted and spent the rest of his life running from it. Mm -hmm. And when... When we get to the place where we are led by our anger, we start making decisions that we otherwise would not make. Uh, You see someone at church in the hallway, you do everything you can to have to go to the bathroom right then so that when you go in, they'll pass by and you can come out. It's just that simple. You see them in the store and you look down hoping they won't see you because if they do look up and see you and you're looking down, maybe just maybe they won't think I saw them and see now what we've done in this. And and we don't even understand it is we have handed over our freedom to another. We have relinquished our freedom to another. And what we have said is simply this, I am willing to relinquish my joy to someone that does not have my best interest at heart anyway. Right. So when you put it in those terms and you think about it logically, okay, look, I know you don't have my best interest at heart, but what I would like to do if it's okay with you is I would just like to simply hand you my joy. And and that wording is important because nobody takes our joy. Nobody takes it. We have to relinquish it. And so what we do is we become someone that we never intended to be. We relinquish our joy to someone else. And then our temperature is dictated by their attitude toward us, their response to us on any given day, or what we hear that they are saying on any given day. And that is no way to live. No, I think that, I think that's uh, exceedingly helpful to think through um, those particular uh, counterfeits and I think any of them, um, if we are giving our joy away, any of them uh, have the same consequence that that last one, where um, I'm, I, 
I picked up, you said the road often traveled where we just let it go, which I think has another element of repression or suppression in it. And now internally we become a thing we don't recognize and we don't know why we've become the thing we've become because we've kind of kept pushing it down. Two things I came to my mind is one reason we push it down is because if we choose one of these counterfeits, we have to maintain a, a particular form of piety. And so that when we want to lay claim that, well, I have forgiven, um, it, it, it's a, it, that's the that's the vehicle that we use to tamp that down because we don't want anyone to know that we've got unforgiveness so mm-hmm. this counterfeit actually ends up becoming like you said the poison we drink that and we wait on them to die but any of these actually have transformative influence over who we become it just is the way that the mind works to orchestrate our resolve. And, and sometimes uh, even, the, even the best of us don't recognize that these counterfeits are improper defenses. They are. They are. And, and let, me, let, let me, you have, um, you've pushed the button. So let me respond. I think... Another thing, and I'm going to get uh, in particular to what you said in just a moment, but I think another thing we have to ask ourselves is, is forgiveness even on my dashboard? Is it even on my dashboard? In other words, uh, you know, I've already said that Job, you know, was very serious about the Lord. God was serious about him. Okay. But I have to answer the question, am I even considering Forgiving. Now, I have been so hurt before that it took me a week to get to the place where I was ready to start the process. And that's what I mean when I say recognize that, you know, it is a process. And so you, if you try to get into it too quickly mm-hmm. and you try to manufacture what you were talking about, a fake identity around someone, mm-hmm. then what happens is, is you end up being conflicted inside because your justice meter is ringing off the wall saying, mm-hmm. This does not feel right. And so I think, you know, people, there are people that would rather uh, embrace their their hurt or their unenforceable rules. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the reason I got hurt in the beginning, if I'm Job is, is because I had an unenforceable rule that said, if I treat God a certain way, he will reciprocate. Yes, That is not biblical. It is bad theology, and it is also an unenforceable rule. Mm-hmm. It's like telling a 17-year-old teenager that they will not. Well, okay, <laughs> get your chains and, and find your dungeon because uh, that is a tough thing to do. Unenforceable rules. What is my ownership in this? Do I own anything in this? Have I done anything? Now, again, Look, you and I have talked before about, you know, one of the, what I think the the major problem in the church today is immaturity. Okay, cut and dried. I think if I were just to to lay it out, that's what I see. And sometimes it's my own immaturity, and I recognize that. But we're talking about a maturity here that is willing to admit its own limitations. Mm -hmm. A maturity that says, all right, listen to Job here. Listen to Job. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know 
that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Okay, here come, here come the limitations. I have declared that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And, and here's what, I, get, a, get a load of verse six. Therefore, I retract. All right. Job has owned it. He has admitted a limitation. And then he is willing to say, I have to change. You see, this, this hurt has become a growth point. Mm -hmm. And God never answered his question. God never answered his question, right. but the hurt has become a growth point. And he said, and I repent in dust and ashes. Mm -hmm. So again, we're talking about maturity here. Mm -hmm. So, so, I mean, we, I mean, how comfortable are you with um, the, the idea that Maybe I should say it this way or ask the question this way, because sometimes it's a cart and horse issue. But <clears throat> so uh, Job learned from this experience and he matured through it. So that was the purpose of the experience or that was the takeaway of the experience? I'm going to say that that was one of the takeaways of the experience. If you want to enumerate uh, takeaways, which I would love to do. Uh, there are actually several, uh, and some of them more obvious than others. Let me, let me give you one example would be that one takeaway is that there is such a thing as a pain that brings healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to talk about the cart and the horse, mm -hmm. there are times when only pain, i.e. the cross can bring healing. Mm -hmm. And in the context of forgiveness, I can tell you that God, God can use people like he can't use anything else in our lives to help us to mature. Sure. And I think that that is why much of the time our uh, immediate uh, response is to uh, pull back and sequester ourselves. When actually, that's not a bad thing, if but for a while. Ultimately, though, you're going to have to sit down and eat with the family. Right. Just like Job did. Now, I think there's something else in this thing, too. And again, I'm going to come from the context of maturity. The question is, am I willing to test the caricature of myself, the caricature of innocence that I believe about myself? <laughs> you see, because we judge others by what they say, we judge ourselves by what we meant. Hmm. And there's a big difference there. And so am maybe, I willing? Maybe you should repeat that again. That way, in case someone's listening along, they'll get it twice. Nobody listens to your podcast, Todd. Well, there's, there's, only, two, <laughs> there's only two people. There's only two people. In fact, the matter is, in fact, the matter is, uh, Rick, you know Rick, my mentor, he actually emailed the other day. He's sitting in Starbucks in Midlothian, Texas, and here's what he says. 
I'm listening to one of your podcasts with Scott Curry on anger. So at least we've got one, an audience of one, Scott. So Hey, let me tell you something. Maybe I really am what I have thought I have been all along. <laughs> That's a joke. Here's what, I, <laughs> here's, here's what I said. We judge others by what they say or what they do, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. Are we mature enough? You see, we all have this, this self-composed, self-designed caricature of innocence that we believe about ourselves. That's awesome. And, and, and so the question is, am I willing to utilize that template on someone else? Right. Because when we have these, these unrealistic expectations, we find ourselves really getting in trouble because I'm different. I don't do that to people. Right. So, so I, I, this, this just, you know, this is a conversation. We end up wherever we end up, but you've, you've pushed me here to think about it this way too. So when we're, when we've pointed to the issue of forgiveness, as you've referenced a couple different places, particularly chapter 42, we're, our, our attention has been focused on Job's um, uh, expression of his wrong. He needs forgiveness. It's a growth point. But there also has to be an element, if we're going to play off your uh, caricature of innocence that we all possess, at some point, one of the hardest things is forgiving yourself. Because it's, I can, I don't know exactly how to do that because I still am going to have this recurring uh, temptation to play into that caricature of innocence. So I can get out of one circumstance where there's been a rupture in relationship with God or with another person. And if I'm playing from that point of, uh, in relationally, in, in from the point of a character of innocence, I, I don't, un, until I mature, I always go to that place first the next time. All right. Yeah. Uh, very true. Very true. Uh, it'd be really good if I had an answer. Uh, no, no, no but, I, 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 I wasn't, I, let me push it. Let me push you. I wasn't looking for, I wasn't pushing for an answer. I just wanted, wondered if, as you have looked at Job, what sort of, what sort of indicators would there be underlying this, you know, that, that admission is, uh, is a forgiveness of self, isn't it? It is. Now it is. I have to hasten to say, though, and I, I want to kind of come back into what you've, what you've said earlier, because actually it presents a beautiful segue here. When we started, first of all, we talked about the fact that there is a question here, a primary question, a very important question, that is, who will be Job's friend? Okay, one of the things that friends have to be willing to do, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick right back in the mud again. I'm going to stand in the quagmire of our context today, which is, of course, the pastor theologian. But one mm -hmm. of the things that we have to make sure that we are 
to someone who is hurting is that we are friend enough to refer them if need be, because what you just said, it's easy. It's like the mix master in Dallas. Uh If you take the wrong exit at the wrong time of the day, it's not real easy to get back to where you need to be. No, it's not. And so what happens is because we all engage in this self-delusional kind of thinking, because it protects us, it does, it protects us, it often takes a who will be my friend kind of person, faithful are the wounds of a friend, to say to us, look, bud, Um, I think there's some things that you may need to unpack. And we have to be careful because not everyone is ready to admit. They have to be to to admit that they're part of the problem, that that, that their thinking is part of the problem. And so they have to be rewired. You're right. It becomes almost innate. Now, now I'm going to hurry because I want to make one more point. And I know this is I hope this is not the last podcast, but but I want to make one before we go. Uh, I mentioned earlier uh, what I heard from T.D. Jakes about the drinking poison and waiting for someone to die. Let me unpack that real quickly and, and, and see if I can utilize Dr. Fred Luskin here. Uh, his book, Forgive for Good, is just nothing short of amazing. And when, when we utilize the drinking poison and wait for someone to die, what we are actually describing is the emotional psychological process that is going on in our head in this context. Okay. So here's what happens. Something happens to us. We immediately attach an emotion to it. And this is why a lot of adults spend their adult lives trying to overcome their childhood. Because when something negative happens, we attach an emotion to it, and then we tell ourselves that story over and over and over again. And the more we tell it, the more that story begins to morph. It begins to, uh, to, to become its own entity. And it gets to where it actually is now worse than what really happened And I'm not saying that what has happened is not bad, but as we process that thing over and over and over again, we end up taking the offense way too personally. We characterize ourselves. Now, this is important because what we do at this point is we write a narrative in our minds of how helpless we are in the face of that kind of cruelty. Mm. And so when we do that, what happens in the brain is, is we deposit that in a memory file Mm -hmm. and that becomes our marching order. In other words, there's a real good chance that we're going to consult that file Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And then as Luskin says, then from that, we create a grievance story. And basically, uh, when you start to tell a friend, well, this is what happened to me, this is what they did to me, that becomes your grievance story. And then if you create a grievance, you ask yourself, okay, so how do I know that I've actually forgiven someone? Well, 
let me ask you this. How angry do you get when you retell your grievance story? Hmm. That'll give you an answer right there. And as we continue, I'm hurrying, as we continue to focus on that grievance story, our self-confidence begins to decrease. And I read a statistic the other day about older pastors who said, I am less confident in myself today than I was when I started in ministry. And then, and this is last, but talking about the drinking, the poison, waiting for someone else to die, and what goes on in our head, the last thing is this. As we continue to tell that story, the brain releases a particular chemical, the fight or flight thing. Mm -hmm. And so the more we retell it, the more chemical is released. And the reason that we keep retelling it and we keep believing it is because we become accustomed to that particular chemical release and it becomes normal for us. So we become addicted to that story. We become, and we don't even, we become addicted to that story and we don't even know what's going on. And here's the kicker. And I'm finished with this. Here's the kicker. All of this is going on upstairs and we don't even know. Yeah. It's called self-talk and our self-talk becomes so bad that we become the incredible Hulk. I stay angry. angry. You know, when, as you were kind of walking through those insights, um, I couldn't help but see the connection to the counterfeits you also described so that, that if, if someone, you know, picked up on that and then, you know, for, for a minute took vacation from listening, um, they might miss the ways that what you just described is an outgrowth of each of those counterfeits because the process always works the same. And so the, the, the word you used as you were describing the counterfeits, particularly that that first one you were introducing it was you talked about, it requires an element of suppression. Well, that suppression is also euphemism for how you talk to yourself. Because right. in order to keep something down, you have to keep telling yourself a particular thing in order for it to kind of stay down and not be problematic in, say, some other areas. And so you're, you're walking down this road, and, and, and this is going to be a terrible analogy, but you, you, you're walking right into something as bad as an opioid addiction because, yes. because it can be as self-destructive relationally as being uh, influenced by a foreignly introduced substance. It becomes a delauded. That's exactly right. And here's, here's the thing. Remember what I said earlier when I said, we think with the scissors method approach mm-hmm. that if I don't have to deal with them, then I'm finished. And what I said was, it's okay to not have to deal with them as long as you still deal with it. Yes. Remember the movie yes. It? Yes. The it is still there. Yes. It is still yes. there. It's like you said, and it is suppressed. And eventually that thing is going to grow roots and it's going to begin to blossom. And when we don't deal with the it, there's going to always be a them. So you That's can right. cut you can cut someone out with your scissors. Then what you do, your defenses are always now on the lookout for who the next them is because you're not That's dealing right. with it. So there's That's always right. a them. And, and, and that plays into directly into 
our context today. I remember talking to what to the director of placement at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, years ago uh, when I graduated, and I said, "What are you seeing today with people with ministers?" And he said, "This I'm seeing that they're going to churches, they're getting hurt, they're leaving after three years, they're not dealing with the it, and they're taking the hurt with them. And so at their next place, they're there for a little over two years." and they leave, and they take it somewhere else, and on and on and ad infinitum yep, goes. Yep, yep, yep. Wow, wow. Well, the, you made a comment earlier. I hope this isn't the last podcast. Well, that's up to you. I, I think that there's always an ongoing conversation because I think this actually just kind of opens up some other um, occasions to delve a little bit deeper, because the truth of the matter is, in pastoral ministry, whether you're a lay leader or or you're a, you know of in vocational ministry like you and I are, these are ongoing issues. In other words, helping people through these particular circumstances of life is an ongoing event. Listen, I did not finish with forgiveness today. I mean, you know, no, I, I don't know done. what it is about when you and I get together, yeah. but. Um, I just, I didn't even finish with forgiveness today. So yes, my heart would say I would love another chance to sit down and just. Oh yeah. I I think because of how you wanted to frame this based on what we're looking at here, this had to be kind of the, you know, the preview because if we're, if we're not, if we're not aware of these particular things, then when we go to talk about how do we define forgiveness, what does it look like? What is the detailed process? then we're kind of jumping the gun because we don't know how to kind of identify the ways at which our thinking has been actually the problem for us uh, with whatever counterfeit or whatever anger we're holding on to. Because we, we, we could have tied all the way back into one of our first conversations when I'm angry all the time. I'm angry all the time because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that this thing's going to happen again. And I have de- didn't deal with it the first time. And so when I don't deal with it the first time, and I'm afraid someone's going to get over on me the second time, i got to create the narrative in my head, and I, then, then we just trail to that litany of descriptors that you had, that process where our self-talk becomes self-destructive. And well, so, you, talked, you talked earlier, uh, real quick, you talked yeah. earlier about uh, you know, staying somewhere uh, for a while and getting to the place where we have those people to whom we minister and, and we're expecting some kind of a reciprocal nature. There's another side to that, too, and that is when you're talking about uh, restoration, and that's the forgiveness in Job, a pastoral restoration where your people have hurt you and God won't release you. Okay, right. so you're restored. You can also find yourself, much like what you described earlier, you can take it and you can spin it and say, yes, and if I've been hurt by certain people, they may not get as many visits as some of the other folks if I don't work through it. Now, I can suppress it. I cannot see them except once a week. But the truth is, when they need me, there's going to be a question as to whether or not I'm there because I haven't dealt with yeah. That's exactly right. Well, folks, we're going to set the schedule. I'm going to I'm going to hold Scott's feet to the fire and we're going to we're going to keep going with this because there's just too much of value. And and so Scott, I, I got to thank you for your time. And uh Love it, man. Love we, it. we'll do it again. In fact, I'll probably just email and say, "Okay, let's go ahead and figure out in the next 2-3 weeks when we can do this again and, and get it on the book." 
All right. I like it. I like All it. right, man. Well, Scott, I want to say thanks, bud. As always, I appreciate you. hope you have a great appreciate day. You. See ya. Hey, as always, uh, thanks for listening. You know, I had a conversation six months ago with Marty Duran. I'm waiting on uh, the schedule, but we're going to have him back. He um, takes care of a site for pastors, a Lifeway pastors, and um, we had an interesting conversation about the most searched for subjects. So we're going to find out what's happened over the last six months and maybe what's brewing out there in the minds and hearts of uh, pastors who frequent that site. So you can look forward to that and then have a couple others on the way. Uh, As I mentioned before, I've got a couple of books I'm trying to wind up so that I can get those authors on. Uh, trying to get Bobby Kelly on to talk about uh, translations in the recent kind of dust-up between uh, David Bentley Hart and N.T. Wright on their respective translations of the New Testament. So that's some things to look forward to. As always, thanks for listening. Share the podcast. Uh, It helps us get discovered and get found. And then, as always, we sure hope you have a great week. Peace. Peace.